0: Hello and welcome to today's PropCast, I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. This is episode three of our ResiCast series in support of this year's Resi Convention and we're going to be talking about PropTech and innovation. And My first guest is going to be Ray's Chowdhury from Revolt Ventures, which is a venture capital and growth equity firm investing in the convergence of real estate and technology, a PropTech VC firm. And and Reyes is going to run us through some of his thinking on what trends will define prop tech companies likely to impact the residential property universe over the next couple of years. And he'll talk us through some of his hot picks, some of the firms that he's most excited by. I'll then be joined by Neil Gamassima from YARDI. Yardi obviously, one of the world's largest, most well-established and most pioneering real estate management software pioneers, and, and also, obviously, a regular supporter of the Resi Convention. First up, though, uh, we've got Rays from Revolt Ventures. So Race, for people that don't know uh, about Revolt Ventures, do you want to give us, give us a quick intro? Tell us where you guys come from, tell us what you're doing, and, and tell us what your interest currently is in the uh, residential market.
1: Sure, absolutely. So Revolt Ventures, we are a venture capital fund investing in technology companies on the crux of real estate innovation. And we normally invest in series A, series B companies. So what that means is they're proven out with product market fit. Um, we invest primarily in Europe. So that's our focus there. And we've done investments across all different types of sectors, um, including some of the more interesting stuff, such as dark kitchens, as well as the more traditional, including ResiAzE such fun Andy, as well.
0: Um, and in terms of I suppose looking uh looking at the market now, because we we have we've, we've you know we've been through this we've probably been through peak peak prop tech, can't even say it, peak prop tech, <laughs> uh you could argue over the last few years, with lots of businesses chucking untold mountains of cash at all sorts of businesses that are never going to make any money, uh, that might be slightly unfair. Um but but what does the what does the what does the horizon look like now? So when you uh and 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 Ted Orf your co-founder, when you're analysing the residential space, how are you looking at things and what are you seeing as, as potential value on the horizon?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting point because I, I do think prop tech has become a bit of a buzzword um, to some extent, as you say, in the last few years. But I, I do think the peak of it is, is certainly not not there yet and there to be seen. I mean, real estate is a huge asset class. And, and you know, coming from a more tech background myself, having been founder's, in in companies, it's really interesting to see how very simple technology can actually make a very big difference. But as you rightly say, people throw a cash at it and you quickly realize some of these businesses aren't as viable as they may seem um, when you sort of look under the hood and try and scale up the economics of them. In in terms of residential, so happy to dig into any area you'd like to talk about in more depth, but we've looked across sort of three key areas. One being sale and transactions, a second area is letting it in management technology. And a third that we're really interested in also is also the development and construction side.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess well, let let's go down that list then. So if we think about transactions, then there's obviously a, a number of interesting businesses there. I mean, let, let's I mean let's take Open Door because they've had tons of press over the last couple of weeks. What's your view on those guys? So obviously they're they're looking at a, a relatively a relatively interesting model of of real estate acquisition. Um, you know when you look at a business like that what do you see
1: yeah so firstly i think it's it's incredibly impressive the level of traction they've received and obviously they're looking to well to some extent ipo go through a go through a spec in the near term um i i think it's a it's a really fascinating way in which residential real estate um can actually get get face and benefit from more liquidity so, we are starting to see early examples of that in Europe and traction there. So, a couple of the companies that we particularly like are Codit.io in Finland and another company called Imo based out of Germany. And the whole. That's Codit
0: sort of- with a K, K O D I T for anybody uh, that can't spell.
1: <laughs> That's the one. You, you also have the I O ending, which a lot of these companies, uh, startups do. Um, and I think it's, it's, an, it's a great example of a U.S. concept that can also be applied very, very well to Europe. And the whole sort of premise of it is, can you use data to effectively identify pockets of value in residential real estate and offer a C 2 B acquisitions process? So consumer to business by acquiring real estate from consumers looking to then redevelop them slash add value or create value in essence. And then look to exit those either very very quickly under a flip model, which Open Door is very famous for, or you can go down the other route, which we're actually very interested in and happy to talk in a bit more depth. Is working with real estate partners to actually accumulate residential real estate portfolios under this C two B model.
0: So the idea is you, you enter at a discount, you scale up, and you exit at a premium. So broadly, it.
1: Exactly. So if you think about residential real estate, it's notoriously difficult to build a large portfolio of assets. And then how it normally starts is you'll have a high net worth who, let's say, has a few million invested, who then exits to another institution, who then accumulates it to, let's say, 10 million, then 50, et cetera. But one of the plays that I find incredibly interesting for institutional investors is can you actually use one of these technology facilitated channels? Which is able to then source a lot of residential assets, which individually are, let's say, 200 to 300k euros on average. But at scale, if you can actually acquire, renovate, and accumulate a portfolio, which can then be for rental, that becomes incredibly interesting for a portfolio premium on exit, as you said.
0: Yeah, so it's just all about reducing your cost of acquisition. And that, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And, and that, you know, I guess that's the same challenge that anyone in business looks at. Uh, it will be on, on different levels. So, mm-hmm. so that, I mean, that's an interesting, interesting summary of, of your transaction box. You, you set out three boxes, and you set out transactions, lettings and management, and, and construction and development. So what, what have you got then? What, what goodies have you got in the lettings and management basket?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we made an investment, which we're particularly proud of, um, towards the tail end of last year that Andy, you know as well, called the flat fair. And we did that alongside Index Ventures, so one of the big generalist funds where we bring in our real estate expertise. And that is a solution that offers deposit-free rentals. And so the idea is, as Andy, if you were a tenant, let's say in London, which is one of the worst places in terms of you know, living and the cost of rental, is you might need to put down up to £8,000, let's say, for your first month of rent, plus the deposit that normally a landlord would expect to hold. Now, the interesting part of that is the landlord also from their side is they want protection through a deposit. And with recent government regulations, that's been capped at five weeks worth of rental value, when there is obviously an underlying risk that Andy or whoever is using the property can cause damages that are worth significantly more than that. And so what Flatfair does, which is incredibly interesting, is they act as an intermediary where you, Andy, can pay a one-off fee, which is can vary between sort of 100 and £200. Pounds, and in return, they will effectively... Protect the landlord and offer additional protection above and beyond what a cash deposit would protect. So it's a, it's a really smart business model because it's win win on both sides. And it also stays within sort of the government requirements and their willingness to try and enable um, lettings for individuals.
0: And then you've also got, I mean, businesses like Open Rent as well. I mean, what, they have almost, you could say, have quietly taken over the rental market uh, as being a purely online platform for renting for people that want just to rent a, a, you know, a normal rented sector, uh, private rented sector home. What's the, what, where do you see that platform? Uh, what, what do you see the values there?
1: Absolutely. And I, and I think you use the analogy there of um, taking the market quietly. And I think that's, if anything, it's, it's even caught us by surprise. And, it, and it's such an interesting business in the sense of they have that cross-platform access and they just bring usability to bringing listings across Rightmove, Zoopla, all the different portals. So what I do like and what's always been a model that we particularly favor at Revolt is with marketplaces, what you want to do is create both sides of the marketplace and scale up quietly without getting too much competition early on. And now, for example, if you do actually do a little drive round, you often see open door signs across houses. And I think that's where you start to realize that actually, yes, they've got the traction there and the marketplace and then the expansive sort of ways in which you can monetize beyond that, obviously then open up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, there's another business, Home People. Is that one of the other ones that, that you're interested in? Home and people, obviously, it's spelt stupidly. Home and then PPL. That's <laughs> everything needs to be spelt ridiculously these days. It? <laughs>
1: well, the URL might have been taken as well, right? <laughs> But um, I actually quite like the name. So no, I think this is a really- Yeah, it's really probably cool. some sort of
0: amateur porn website, isn't it?
1: <laughs> <You should laughs> Spell it correctly. <laughs>
0: no, I always say, well, a podcast.
1: <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, so no, so I like the name. But aside from that, I think the company is uh, it's also very interesting because they're, they're using open banking as a way to effectively better understand tenant risk. Um, and, and also that also means you can open up tenancies for individuals where let's say if you're self-employed or you are for example a very good saver or not a big spender you should be able to rent a property um, from the goodwill of that basis as well so that's one that we're keeping an eye on very closely that follows that open banking trend of having access or more granular data as a way of um, risk pricing should we say uh, potential tenants
0: yeah and i think you know and it's something that i know people are looking at now on the commercial real estate side of things as well and obviously it's become very relevant in in the current day and age although uh i guess as more institutional funding comes into the residential space platforms like home people are, are going to become more relevant aren't they
1: absolutely i completely agree i think it's all about i mean one of the one of the big themes for me in technology um Is I I just like those type of trends that open up access for new individuals, because naturally that is just expanding your market and the realm of possibilities that you can effectively grow your business into. And that's much easier than, let's say, and this goes back actually to your first point, Andy, which is when PropTech first came up, there are a lot of these solutions. And why did a lot of them go bust? Because if you're then having multiple companies with very little IP competing for that same customer we certainly prefer going against those models and more for ones that are almost greenfield, like an open rent into their own market space or a flat fair into their own sort of green market to run into in essence.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so we've got open rent, flat fair, home people. So it's so your last bucket end for the, on the construction development side. I mean, you invested into a business called disperse uh, recently it's disperse relatively easy to spell disperse.io. That's uh, uh Yeah. Relatively sensible URL, isn't it? Um, so I'm showing my age now, aren't I, Reese? Uh, so, 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 tell us about what you, know, what, what was, what was the play there? So Disperse as a business is essentially construction tech.
1: Absolutely. So, as as a quick context um, to what Disperse do, what they do is they use off the shelf lidar cameras, which actually I found an iPhone 12 will now include as well. What so explain told.
0: lidar for anybody listening to this that, that that thinks you're talking about some sort of sunbed.
1: <laughs> so you've got me on the spot in terms of what it stands for, but what it actually does is it's a way of effectively capturing camera imagery similar to what you would get on a Google Street View, as an example. Yeah,
0: yeah. And yeah, so
1: yeah. that's something that if you have the raw image in itself is quite interesting because let's say we could take an image of our the current room I'm in as an example. And let's say we were taking it at multiple points whilst it was being built, we could effectively build a Google Street View of how the room looks at different points in time over time. But yeah, so it's, it's,
0: it's, yeah, so it's this light detection and ranging. So it essentially sends a laser and, and measures measures ranges, sort of feeling its way using light. Exactly.
1: And where Disperse comes in is that they do computer imagery processing on top of that to effectively track how a construction site progresses over time. So as an example, if you think about the room I'm in now, there will have been a point in time it was just, um, you know, a dry shell. And then beyond that, you would have the plumbing put in, dispersed would be able to see that, okay, on this date was when the plumbing was put in, this was a subcontractor who did it, and effectively monitor along with tracking with the workflow progress of changes that are happening on the construction site and to the level and granularity of in residential every single individual flat every single layer starting from plumbing all the way to drywall coming up above it all the way to every nut, nut and bolt that's been put and layering back the walls in essence as a single source of truth.
0: Mm, mm. So I mean, it's and, and and given for example, the the massive cladding scandal that we've got in the UK and some wider problems around poorly constructed buildings, it's the sort of platform that potentially could be quite useful for companies extensively you know to use uh you know where there might be legal issues or other other disputes occurring i mean obviously you know we're seeing the the, the grenfell scandal continue to play out and, and no one's really taking blame there but some sort of technology platform like this could help on that dispute resolution side couldn't it
1: completely agree and i, and I think you've you've absolutely you know you've you've completely described the value prop of what they do and what, what they create so Brentville, obviously, since then, you've had all the issues you've had with cladding with all these new builds and no one wants to take responsibility for who wants to, you know, cover the cost or what the issue is or which subcontractor or contractor or developer made the plans or adjusted the workflows for them. And I think where Disperse is getting a lot of traction with more or less every single one of the major house builders now is they are a single source of truth. And so what it means is you can effectively, you know, 10 years down the line, 30 years down the line, every single building that was built through disperse, you can see on week two of the construction progress, this is what it looked like. Subcontractor named Andean Co came and fitted the plumbing. And on week three, you know, razors, um, drywall fit out came and let's say used the wrong nail when they were screwing the nails on for the cladding on the, on the facade as an example, or on the interior. And I think that's just such a valuable source of information that otherwise is so easily lost. And then ultimately you have the finger pointing that comes from that.
0: Yeah, that's a very, very good point. Well there's some interesting interesting opportunities there. So I mean on a broader sense then, I mean, in, in terms of I suppose the 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 fallout from COVID, where do you see where do you see technology's role in that? Because obviously, um well, not obviously, but we we have seen the 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 sort of switch to online reshape in in one fell swoop, sectors like retail, uh, sectors like work, sectors like uh, video conferencing are all things that are, that have totally been upended over the last six or seven months. But in when it comes to residential, do you, do you see there being any profound shifts?
1: I think you're already starting to see it, and and frankly, I think COVID's been more of an accelerator. As it has been sort of creation of new concepts so as an example one of the really easy ones to relate to is virtual viewing so that technology has existed for you know it's it's really simple it's video work effectively and that's been around for years but letting agents have still been doing it manually and particularly in the first instance where a lot of buyers drop out that's been that's been one of the ways to do it so I I do think it's more been an acceleration of trends Um, I think we've only seen the start of it I think there's going to be similar to sort of the work from home idea and the trends that that brings. A lot of this will persist post-COVID, independent of how long COVID then lasts. And, and, you know, happy to go into more depth, but for me, it's across all of the value chain. So residential in particular, all the way through, let's take and Management as an example, is you can drive efficiencies from everything, from identifying that um, solution, which can be done through Rightmove, et cetera, identifying the property you'd like to rent, shall we say, all the way through to... Companies such as Plantific or Hurdle, which are solving the maintenance piece, so why should I need to call a contractor who then needs to ask you if you've been COVID checked before he comes in, etc. All of this exists, but I think it's just about now people being open to using it, both from the tenant side, the landlord side, and the owner operators as well.
0: Yeah, no, Plantific is an interesting business. They're, they're, yeah, they're, those guys have, have got a good, uh, got a good base, got a good good product. Um, Absolutely. And I think you know it, it, it is. It is about just just making that whole consumer interface a little bit more, uh, well, a little bit more resilient, a little bit better, a little bit smoother, a little bit more frictionless. Um, that that for me is as a consumer, um, one of the biggest hurdles that the sector faces.
1: I completely agree, and I, and I think the really interesting analogy for me is if you compare residential to hospitality, because hotels have actually been. Very forward-thinking in terms of everything from yield management and the data in terms of how you account for, you know, flexible flexible um, stays, for example, all the way through to how you simplify service provision, guest experience, amenities that come with that property management. You know, the big Marriotts, et cetera, your Hiltons actually have a lot of technology and data teams behind a lot of the work they do, and I think there's a there's certainly food for thought there for residential operators to to take on into their portfolios.
0: Next up is Neil Gamassima from Yardi, who joined me down the line a little bit earlier on. So apologies for the slight dip in sound quality. But as you can hear, he'll still have some amazing insights to share. I started by asking him, given COVID-19's impact on innovation, given the rate at which it's sped up change, I asked him what's still lacking in the UK residential market.
2: I think one of the biggest things that's still lacking would be is the direct investment in technology as a platform to drive innovation. And I say that because there's processes that the residential market could further invest in that helps, as an example, a potential applicant applicant to a property and a unit in turn is to to apply for a unit online, make a payment for a unit online, sign a lease online. And, and that, for the most part, is still not available by the majority of landlords and or service providers in the UK. So I see that's a very fairly straightforward type of an example that could be implemented in a much uh, larger portion of the industry.
0: I mean, it's fair to say that many businesses, particularly uh, in in multifamily and and purpose-built student accommodation, have had to adapt. They have had to become more flexible, be that on, on how they manage buildings, on how they Operate uh, and and provide leases and contracts for their customers. What's your view there in terms of that those sectors becoming more flexible? And specifically, I'm interested in how they can use technology to do that.
2: I think flexibility is is one of the most important type of learnings, perhaps during COVID, is that organizations, regardless of the industry, have to be more flexible. If we but if we take residential and student as an example. And that one would be is that traditional student accommodation providers don't have the flow of university students that they have on a predictable basis, given the uncertainty in terms of when school sessions start, whether foreign students can come in and start their, their university terms, et cetera. And so the traditional means of renting out space in a PBSA, i.e. a student environment, has changed dramatically and i think that there needs to be greater flexibility in terms of how um, large providers of student accommodation are able to manage that and technology is one big part but i think the second big part then is in terms of how local governments enable um, the student providers also to be able to potentially lease those units um, not only to students for shorter periods of time but also to potentially um, other individuals that need to to rent residential space so i think it's a combination between both local government regulations uh i.e city council as well as then uh technology in terms of how um, large operators need to accommodate changes to their 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 um their their buyer i.e the the student
0: does it become a bit problematic though if you suddenly start renting out a student building to regular citizens who might then claim they've they've got a right to stay
2: (laughs) yeah so that's a great point And I I don't think that the intention would be is that during traditional student terms or periods that student accommodation is typically used by a student going to university. But I think there are really good examples by which during um, off-term cycles, i.e. summer cycles, by which the majority of student accommodation providers have a very high degree of vacancy during that period of time. And that in turn means that there's a ton of stock on the market that could be used for other purposes. And perhaps that's more of a hotel type of a functionality or a la an Airbnb functionality by which you still have defined rental periods um, on a short-term stay basis rather than um, trying to mix up the the occupancy of you know, families versus students versus young professionals, et cetera.
0: And in terms of uh, emerging from the pandemic, what do, you see, uh, what do you see some of the learnings are likely to be in terms of your conversations with, with, with different clients across real estate? What have they learned from this period and, and how are they reflecting on that?
2: Some of the feedback that we've certainly seen in, in the industry and in our clients is that it's, COVID has un, un, uh, unearthed um, or uncovered, I should say, is elements of their businesses that are more disconnected today. And they've, um, they've identified these because their employees have been having to work from home. And so whether it's simple examples of how do I access a particular file on the, on the, on the share drive that sits in my office or how do I pay my invoices that my suppliers are, are sending me because it's paper-based and those invoices are in the office or how do I actually manage a customer inquiry because the traditional way that I've done that is that my customer comes into the office so that I can explain what units are available. I think those are all examples that um, are are more forthcoming now and obvious to to clients where they had manual processes. And I think that's really helping them to drive in terms of investing now so that they can not only drive efficiency in their operations, but that they'll have greater scalability um, as businesses resume more um, to more perhaps of a a normal situation over the upcoming um, periods of time.
0: And, uh, you know, uh, one of the things I think, obviously, people are talking a lot about right now, um, and we're we've, we've seeing this, uh, well, we're seeing it under the spotlight a little bit in terms of, of Google and its use of data and its monopoly on data. Um, I don't need you to use a comment on that, but I'm interested in 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 Yardi's views on how data could be better used in real estate. Obviously, everything now has had to become a lot more digitized. Uh, people are more aware of that stuff, the, the, the sort of stuff that they weren't aware of before. What do you think, um, particularly in Europe, where, where the GDPR has made data usage a lot more scrutinized and, and made people a lot more cautious? How are people able and, and how are people actually using data to drive efficiencies in their business?
2: That's a good question, Andy. I think that the first statement would be is um, what data elements are being collected and what data elements, um, as they are anonymized and aggregated and analyzed, are effective for a business. I think too often these days, one throws out new technology terms or acronyms in terms of machine learning and, and artificial intelligence will solve everything I and actually what all
0: they mean there is often it's just they're just talking about a big Excel sheet, aren't they? That that's that's something. Well, I,
2: I think there's they're thinking of a a a scenario by which all of their data is in one place. And the reality is that most organizations have their data parked across multiple different systems and Excel is one of the most popular. Excel is certainly not a friendly GDPR um, tool, as as many know but I, but i think it it goes back to his understanding in terms of one is how is data collected what types of data are collected and analyzed be transparent to the organizations or the individuals i should say that data is being collected upon and be very clear in terms of what the data is going to be used to drive efficiency in a business and that efficiency will can uh benefit the consumer i.e. the resident And it can also benefit the operator in terms of being more efficient in terms of both the the services that they're able to provide as well as um, ultimately in terms of the cost associated with maintaining those operations. An example could be um, your favorite uh, being chatbots in terms of how a chatbot can be used on a website to have an initial conversation with a prospective tenant in terms of are pets allowed And if so, what type of pets as an example? And so that could be a very basic interaction so that the the consumer, the applicant, is able to identify pet-friendly apartments that might not be fully visible on a property website. Um, But I think what's important to then also understand is that this ongoing engagement that organizations still need to have is, is leveraging off of both technology as well as the personal relationships that they build up with their customers.
0: And and in terms of implementing all of this wonderful stuff, and that will be probably the concern of of many uh, many operations chiefs will be sounds great, but how the hell do I implement this in a cost effective way? Um, what is the route to that? I mean, if you're a large business, um, and particularly in in as we're seeing at the minute, there is a fair amount of M A going on. There will be companies acquiring other businesses. Um, it's easier said than done, isn't it, Neil, to, to to start bashing everything together and having one of your systems talk nicely?
2: Yeah, I think that's probably an understatement of, of how um, simple it is. Um, I, I think this idea of having dozens of systems that can seamlessly talk to each other through an API or an open format is tough. And I think it's, and, and there's been industries that have kind of shown that fully connected systems and the proper architecture um, create a better environment and a better ecosystem for for the customer. I think Apple's a very good example of that, as an example. And one can maybe disagree with whether you like Apple products or not. But again, they've built a very strong foundation in the ecosystem uh, on how everything needs to work. I think that within the real estate industry, one of the traditional challenges has been is the underinvestment into the core platform and uh too much utilization of of off system practices that make it hard to kind of build a strong foundation but what do you mean by that so just
0: just what what does that what does that mean for people listening to this that might not be quite so technical what what
2: ah yeah that's a good question
0: You mean they've just they've just chucked money at gadgets is that what you mean
2: well i think you know so prop tech is is kind of the term of the of the uh not the decade necessarily but certainly for the last few years and you know Proptech really focuses on this concept that um, there is now innovation in real estate and technology in real estate. and it and and part of this is driven by the fact that one is that um, the the there are easier tools to use to create an app um, in terms of uh, to publish an app through online stores to get to a broader audience. I think the challenge with PropTech tech overall is is to be able to understand what the what the value is that a certain app or an application provides back to the the group and how it fits into their overall structure. And so maybe to also directly um, address your question, I think many organizations will use multiple different systems, whether it's a separate general accounting system for for accounting. They'll use um, a different system for facilities management. They'll use a different system for engaging with their customers through websites and and resident portals. They'll use a different system for lease and property management. They'll use a different system for screening. They'll use a different system for payments. And all of this then becomes challenging and more onerous for organizations to connect to each other. And so it might be easier for larger organizations because larger organizations will typically have larger IT budgets, but it doesn't make it any easier for them to actually have a a strong foundation of data. And I think that's really where where investments are going into is in terms of how can I build a stronger foundation that then scales for for not only today's business environments but also for tomorrow's changing business environments.
0: And who does this well? I mean, obviously, you you talked about Apple, and your view on Apple would will probably depend on if you can afford to buy a new phone for a thousand bucks every year. Um, and you know, I guess a lot of people listening to this probably can, but nevertheless, Apple's walled garden, as you describe it. Uh, there's 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 pros and cons from that isn't there really in that if you want to get your your apple device working with outlook you know good luck with that um because that, that's never the easiest thing in the world as you know few have probably found out but 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 being serious what are you what are you prescribing here are you prescribing that that real estate firms in the residential space can effectively become walled Gardens, and their competitive advantage over their rivals could be the data that they have. Is that what you're suggesting?
2: Well, I think the the I think that's quite a good
0: idea. Just just to put words in your mouth, I think that that's quite a good suggestion, and I don't think yeah. anyone's anywhere near it yet. But it, well, it's something I, I, that, I that think me. It could be an idea.
2: You know, so an ironic statement that I found is that that's been surfaced over the past few years is that data is the new oil. And I think that's interesting because data has always been the oil, right? It's always kind of been the value that you get from something to be able to analyze it. And and within real estate, one would say is location is is kind of location, location, location. But it's so much more than that, too. It's it's the idea of in terms of how do you then use data, not only the data in the properties, but the data of the demographics uh, around and the different types of characteristics of, of the location. And how do you then add placemaking in terms of the concept of how do you actually create a a A space that's different um, to other spaces, but all encompassing of a community that that people live in, data is the core driver that helps you determine strategy and and I think with the lack of of data for analysis purposes, it just makes everyone's job so much harder
0: um, so Neil, is there anything on your roadmap then that that, that that can address some of this stuff in terms of you know what we've discussed around bringing together all these many disparate strands of data? in a way that that's that's workable to your average um, COO, average CIO.
2: Yeah, um, we've got a new platform that we're introducing into the UK market and it's called Breeze Premier. And so Breeze Premier is targeted for smaller and medium-sized owner operators, um, asset managers. And the unique thing about Breeze Premier is that it includes an end-to-end platform that is very simple to to implement, to install and to use. And so an example of that would be it includes a full um, general accounting system, so G-L-A-P-A-R, full property management system, but it also includes things like integrated payments. It includes marketing portals. It includes resident um, portals. It includes resident apps, work orders, and facilities management, all within one platform And and that's a platform that we're introducing in November. We're really super excited about it, something that we've had in North America for a number of years, and it's just had huge adoption. And we think that it will help um, provide um, the marketplace in the UK kind of a a much-needed sense of fresh air versus other, other platforms that are currently on the market, hence the name It's a Breeze and um, we feel that the feedback from our clients has been it's a breeze to use and we hope that this helps differentiate our clients and their opportunity to service their investors and their, their, their residents more effectively moving forward
0: thanks very much then to Neil from Yardy and speaking a little bit earlier to Ray's Chowdhury from Revolt Ventures now we'll have some more prop tech on the next episode of our ResiCast series next week as we dive into sustainability with uh, a great startup called Utopia. Uh, and we'll also hear from Moda Living on how they've been navigating the pandemic and, and embracing technology to drive up their, their ESG credentials. Um, before we go some of those firms that Ray's mentioned are, uh, once again just for anyone that's Interestingly, we had Open Door, we had code it with a K, we had Mo.co.uk, OpenRent, Flatfair, Home People, PPL, and disperse.io Those are some of the companies that, that, that Ray's picked a little bit earlier. Now you can subscribe to to us via Apple, via Spotify, and all good online podcast platforms do share this episode with your contacts do, do get in touch actually as well if there's anything you'd like to talk about or anything you, you think we should be uh, poking our, our snouts into and above all don't forget to book your place at this year's resi convention via the propertyweek.com website which you can do right now uh, thanks a lot for listening um, i've been andrew teacher at black Salt consulting and we'll see you again very soon on our prop thank you